Lord, it is so true that we can't even begin to put into words just how much we owe you. Lord, if we praise you forevermore, we couldn't praise you enough for what you've already done, let alone what you're going to do. Lord, I just pray, Father, as we go to your word right now, you'd be our teacher. I pray that man would decrease, that your spirit would increase, that you would be glorified. Lord, I pray that as we look at a word of, of real exhortation that was given, Lord, even to the children of Israel and bringing correction to their lives, that we would be receptive if there's any of us here, Lord, that need correction as well, need exhortation, that need direction. Lord, I pray that for my own life, for everybody who's here, Lord. Be our teacher. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. It's great to have you here. Turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 3. Continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. Again, if you don't have a Bible, you're going to need one. All right. Well, by the way, Sunday was a great day, man. Just love seeing just the fruit of ministry. People getting saved, people getting baptized. God's doing a great and awesome work. But uh, my heart is that, that we, you know what, guys? May we be more diligent to pray for the people that we know that are lost. Can I encourage you? You know, as a youth pastor, we used to, I used to encourage the kids to get out and write down 10 names or 20 names and just commit to pray for them every single day. It'd be amazing what happens when you start praying for people. Prayer doesn't change God's mind, it changes our hearts. And it's amazing how many opportunities we'll have. So I want to encourage you, just be praying about doing that because there are people all around us that are going to hell without Jesus Christ and it's so important. There's nothing more important than them coming to know Him. Amen? All right. Well, thus far in this brief first two chapters of Judges, we've seen that at the death of Joshua, instead of looking to the Lord, the children of Israel began seeking, a, uh, instead of looking to the Lord as their king, they began to fall away from the Lord. It was almost immediate. Joshua died, people fell away. And sadly, that happens today. People are followers of men often when they ought to be following the Lord. You know, it's sad because it says there became a generation after him that did not know God. So we began with looking in Judges chapter 1, the compromise that immediately came in. They began to compromise one by adding to the word of God. God had given a command, they started adding to it. Then they started following the world's example instead of following the example that had been set out by God. Then they, be, they fi- failed to finish the job. Well, this, we'll talk about this more tonight. But remember, he told them, when you go into the land, wipe them all out. Don't leave a man, a woman, a child, nothing. And make sure you tear down their idols. And the reason he told them that is because he knew their weakness would be to, if they allowed them to stay, to begin to worship the way they worshiped and follow after their gods. You know, the Bible says that bad company corrupts good morals. And too often we try to circumvent that. We try to say, yeah, but this is a special, unique circumstance for me. These are my four old friends from high school, and they really need to know about the Lord, so I'm just going to hang out and party with them for a few months and you know, try to live my lifestyle in front of them. And before you know it, you're drinking and partying with the rest of them. You know, guys, again, not that we shouldn't reach out to the world, not that we don't want to see them saved, but we are not to be more like the world to reach them. We are to be less like the world. And he said, wipe them out completely because I know you will fall into the trap of becoming like them. And then they dwelled with the world, refusing to remove, again, the enemy from the camp. Then last week, we saw the results of that. If you were here, thorns of disobedience. The first week was, again, the 
the consequences of compromise. And in the second week, the thorns of disobedience. When we disobey God, there are consequences. And people struggle and say, well, wait a minute, are you preaching legalism? Are you preaching works-based salvation? Absolutely not. It's by grace we've been saved, not of works lest any man should boast. But our salvation should transform the way we live. You know what? Our sin and rebellion does indeed have consequences. And we saw this, indeed, there's a difference last time between crying because we got caught and true repentance. Anybody, Anybody a parent here? Raise your hand. You know all about this, don't you? You've been caught, so you cry to get out of the punishment. That is not repentance. Repentance is brokenness and a desire to get right before the Lord. There was also a problem not only with a a lack of repentance, but there was a need to pass the truth on to the next generation. And then we saw that God will never force His will upon any of us. Now, we want to do that often with our children, and they don't want to hear it either, but the truth is that God will never force us to do anything. He'll never, he'll, he'll allow us to, to compromise. He'll allow us to fall into the traps because he's not going to force us to be robots. He wants us to love him out of our own free will. And sadly, what happens is that our fleshly and disobedient responses to God's commands uh, cause so much more grief than any temporary, you know, happiness that our sin will bring. You know, the biggest liar on the planet is the devil. And he will tell you and entice you with things that will bring you that temporary happiness, but in the end will bring about destruction. And it will result in long-term difficulty and discomfort and broken fellowship with God. And as we saw in chapter 2 with Israel's refusal to, to rid the land of the pagan people and their altars and allowing them to stay and forcing them to pay taxes, they disobeyed God's command because they wanted to be comfortable and they wanted to have some financial gain. You know what, guys, speaking from my heart, I believe that's most of the church today. Most of the church today is cheapening God's grace to the point of seeing holiness and obedience as nothing more than legalistic jargon of self-righteous. They're saying, you know what, don't be preaching that to me, man. Don't be telling me how I'm supposed to live my life. Don't, you know, get the beam out of your own eye, man, right? Don't be telling me and don't be talking to me and don't tell, and I want, you know, hey, I'm saved. I got, you know, I got Jesus in my heart and I can live any way I want. I have freedom in Christ. Guys, we have freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. Amen? And I just, Jesus plus nothing again, indeed, is, it equals salvation. And we don't earn our salvation. And it's not faith or works or faith plus works, but faith that works. But too many Christians today excuse away their sinful behavior, claiming it to be freedom in Christ. In tonight's text, we're going to see the consequences of Israel's willful disobedience. You know what? Maybe you're here tonight by divine appointment. God brought you here. And you know for a fact already that God's pointing stuff out to you. Oh, man, I, I, oh, man it have to be about this. Because you already know. God's putting in your mind, there's that thing, you know what, there's Agag at your house. There's that thing that you're holding on to. There's that willful disobedient part of your life that you're continuing in. And you know what, you may think nobody knows, but God knows. And God's heart would be that we would deal with it, not so that we'll be saved, but because we are saved, and we want to live in the center of God's will, and we shouldn't be satisfied with anything less than that. Because God knows what's best for us, you guys, amen? Too many of us were like three-year-olds juggling knives. It's only a matter of time, right? I'm going to lop a finger off. So we're going to see these three examples of these judges who 
God's going to use to restore them. But as we look at these three, the first three judges, we're going to see some examples in these guys that will be an exhortation or an application for each one of us how you and I can get rid of the strongholds in our life. And I want to encourage you, be attentive. Take notes if you're a note taker. And again, I want to say this. It's not about getting the Lord on our side. It's about us getting on His side. You know, too often we're trying to get God to condone our behavior. Okay, God, here's what I want to do. Here's the plan I have for my life. Here's what I'm all about. Let me just explain it to you. Now you get behind it. And that's too many of us. We can even do that in ministry. Lord, here's what I want the church. And here's how I want it to be. And Lord, you just need to get behind it and make it happen. Instead of, Lord, what do you want? Lord, what is your will for my life? Lord, my life is yours. You want to send me to Romania? I'll go tomorrow. Lord, you want to, you want to, whatever you want for my life, Lord, my life is in your hands. And I know that what you have for me is what's best for me. Instead of me telling God what he needs to do. And so you and I need to learn, come to the point where we submit our lives to him completely. During the Revolutionary War, someone asked General George Washington, who became our first president, as you know, that, will you pray that the Lord will be on our side? And he said, instead, we need to pray that we're on his side. He said, you know what? No, we don't need to tell God what to do. We need to, we need to ask God what we should do. Lord, where's your side? Let's get on that. And you know what? That's, that should be our heart today. And as in the time of judges, people are doing what is right in their own eyes. Obedience to God among many Christians is half-hearted at best. Well, yeah, I'll obey if I feel like it. Yeah, obedience, okay, yeah, it's overrated. And too often we, we have this attitude when it comes to walking in the center of God's will. You know what, we should be encouraged by looking at these judges and seeing what happens to those who just walk outside of God's will. The Lord loves us. He knows what's best for us. Guys, I want to hear seven words. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Amen? That's my, you know what, that's my heart. That's my passion. That's what really matters. Is that we be disciples of Christ and making others into disciples of Christ. That we would know Him and make Him known. Because guys, when this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last and nothing else is going to matter. So I titled the message tonight, Bringing Down Strongholds. And we're going to see three different judges and as we go through them, we're going to see some attributes in their lives that will help each one of us if we're struggling with undealt with sin in our lives. And again, I know this won't be popular, but that's okay. This isn't a popularity contest, Amen. You know, God wants us and has what's best for us, and He wants us to obey all of His Word, and that's why we teach all of it. So we're going to begin by looking at the high cost of compromise. That's part one. And then part two, we'll look at the faithful judges that God used, and in them we'll see some attributes that I hope will minister to every heart that's here. So let's begin in verse one, looking again at bringing down strongholds, the high cost of compromise. May this this exhort each one of us. May it change the way that we look at our lives and the things that we do every single day. Look at verse 1. Now these are the nations which the Lord left that He might test Israel by them, that is, all who had not known any of His wars in Canaan. These are the nations which the Lord left. Now we need to get a clear, clear picture. that This is God's permissive will. Do you know that God has a perfect will and a permissive will? Some people might struggle with those terms, but let me just explain it to you. God has a perfect will and plan for my life, but God's not going to force me to do it. And God's perfect will for the children of Israel was, wipe them all out. Go in there, wipe them all out. 
destroy them all. So instead, what did they do? They went in and said, hey, they could pay us taxes. We can get them to work in our fields. We can lay around and eat grapes in the land flowing with milk and honey and make them do all the work. So let's just keep them here. It's better to keep them here than to obey God. It's better to be comfortable than to obey God. It's better to, you know, and have someone to serve us than for us to truly serve God. And so God now says he's left these nations in the land, but it was not, I want to make it very clear, his perfect will. God's desire was that they be wiped out immediately and completely. But they chose compromise and convenience and worldly wealth over obedience to God. They saw that God had forbidden, what God had forbidden was really to them a money-making opportunity. Well, if I just tell a little bit of a lie on this contract, I can make a little extra money, and you know, God's forgiven me anyway, so. And if I just fudge a little bit on my taxes, it's not fudging, it's lying. Amen? We love to change words, don't we? It's an affair. No, it's adultery. Amen? And we love to change words to feel better about our actions. And so what have they done? They allowed the, the enemy to stay within the land, and God knew it was going to be a disaster before it was over. But God, again, will never force His will upon us. God allowed them, giving them what they wanted, as He will with you and I often. People say, God, this is what I want. I'm doing it. I don't care what you think. I'm doing it. Okay. Okay. I love you enough that I'm going to let you do it. But guess what? The consequences, as we're going to see in the chapter tonight, the consequences of our sin often become a test in and of themselves. And an opportunity for either repentance or to continue on in our rebellion. And that's what we're going to see in tonight's text. He says, these are the nations which the Lord left. So he left these nations there, though it was not God's highest, there was to be no one else there but the children of Israel. These areas of sin and strongholds that in the end are going to cause them problems as they leave the pagan idol worshipers in their land. You know, as a youth pastor, I used to talk to parents all the time. They used to say, are you telling me my kids shouldn't be hanging out with unbelievers? That's exactly what I'm telling you. Oh, man, that's harsh. That's so harsh. You know, what? what are we self-righteous? We're just too good for them? No. I promise you this much. If your kid's on fire for God, all their friends will either get saved or stop hanging out with them anyway. But if, but if we allow our kids to be surrounded by unbelievers who are not walking with God, we become like the people we hang out with. That is an absolute fact. And so the Lord's heart was, get them out of the land. Because if you leave them there, there's going to be nothing but trials and struggles. Then he says here, that he might test Israel by them. It was within the power of God to eliminate them anyway. Couldn't God have eliminated them anyway? God, they didn't go in and kill them, and God said, all right, you guys are lazy, all right, pff, I'll kill them anyway. God didn't do that. God said, I'm going to leave them there, and now they're going to be a test for you. How are they going to be a test, having the, the pagan nations within the land and their idolatry? The word test here is used in the sense of a proving ground. These nations would remain because God wanted them to prove their faithfulness to Him in the midst of their disobedience. The consequences of sin often can turn into a test to turn us back to God. When we've sinned, the consequences are an opportunity for repentance or further rebellion. Here's an example. You go out and you're sleeping with your girlfriend or your boyfriend when you're not supposed to. Which is always, by the way. So, one of them, the, girl, the female, turns up pregnant. 
So now you've got a decision to make. You sinned, it was wrong, now you're pregnant, now what do you do? Here's an opportunity for repentance and brokenness and getting right before God. Or you can go and rebel further and have an abortion and kill the baby. I've dealt with this. I've sat across the table with people discussing these very things. Where we sin and now the consequences come and to cover that sin we've got to send some more. Here's a test coming their way. There's the pagan idolaters in the land, and I can continue to sin even more, or I can look and realize I've blown it and get right with God. You tell a lie, and now you get caught, and you have a choice to make, don't you? Tell another lie to cover that lie, or repent. See, consequences of sin are a test and an opportunity for repentance, or further rebellion. I'm totally busted. I am nailed. I am caught red-handed. Now what? You know when your kids are little, isn't it amazing that stuff breaks in your house and no one ever did it? <laughs> I would say, I didn't achieve it. Everybody does that. That's what happens. And the point is that, you know, you know when God's starting to work in somebody's heart when they sin and they're broken. Oh, it was me. I did it. It was me. Lord, forgive me. Lord, I'm broken. Lord, I need to make this right before you. Well, guess what? That's not what's going to happen in this chapter. Look at verse 2. This was only so the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. So he left them in the land so it would teach the next generation something. They would know how to have the battle with the, again, those pagans within the land and they would know god's heart to rid them of them completely here was an opportunity to say to the kids you know what we blew it we shouldn't have done it and here's what we're supposed to do and we're going to do it now and you're going to come help us you know guys when we blow it and we're caught in sin in front of our children it's an opportunity for us to teach them something is that true or not if you've blown it go apologize to your kids you know, I love the little life lesson. Sometimes it's something real small. It can be that you give the guy a $5 bill at the drive-thru and he gives you change for a 20. And your kids are sitting in the car. I can't tell you how many times this happens to me. It's amazing. I, it's, I'm not kidding. I'm, I wonder how that Burger King stays in business. That guy's always giving me change for a 20. And every time it happens, it's amazing. I look at my kids and I go, and I turn and I, hey, I gave you a five. And I give them the money back. And again, that's a small way of teaching your kids to not just talk about it, but live it. It may seem like, and there's those little teachable moments all day, every day. And part of it is when we've totally blown it, that's the time we need to go to our kids and say, you know what, your dad blew it. I lost my temper and I shouldn't have. Will you forgive me? And when these guys went into the land and they left all the pagan you know, nations there and they left all the idols up and now their kids are coming along, they could have come and said, you know what, kids, we blew it. We missed God. We're supposed to have wiped them out. Grab, you know, grab yourself a, a sword and let's go get them. Come with us and watch God, the mighty hand of God at work. And so the Lord left them there that the children may learn. May, may our children learn of repentance, not rebellion from our example. Amen? May they learn of repentance, not rebellion from our, our example. Look at verse 3. Namely, I like this. Now he's going to name the people that were left in the land. And it says, namely, the five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites who dwelt in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal, Hermon, 
to the entrance of Hamath. Now, I like that they are named here, and I think there's a great application for us because they're naming the pagan people, the pagan territory that's in the land still. So they can identify who the enemy is. I think confession is a powerful thing. And I think it's so important that you and I identify what the strongholds are in our life. You know what Satan wants you to do? Just keep it under a bushel so no one knows you got it, right? Hide it. Don't say anything to anybody. You know what? Maybe you're here tonight and you've got a stronghold of anger. Fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness. But I don't see anger anywhere in that list. It's not there. But yet there's Christians that, I mean, blow a head gasket like that. Now, is that the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Is that a great testimony at work? Right? Is it a great testimony when you're driving in your car and you're chewing on your steering wheel? Get in front of me! That is not the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Anger. How about bitterness? How about pride? How about self-righteousness? How about unforgiveness? Lust? Gossip? Lying? Drugs? Alcohol? Pornography? Fornication? Adultery? Ungodly relationships? Being unequally yoked together with an unbeliever? Friendships with the world? Greed? Selfishness? The pursuit of wealth? These are all things that can be strongholds in the life of the believer. And just right here, he names them. Here's what they are. Here's the strongholds. Here they are. Here's the things that you left when you shouldn't have. And I think it would be awesome if we just stand before God. He already knows. Does God know what they are? You know, Lord, I'm really struggling with being self-righteous. Uh, duh, like I don't know. God knows. The problem is that we want to act like nobody knows. And the point is, we need to get to the point where we, you know, as Pastor Cy Rogers said, admit it and submit it, Right? Admit it openly. Here's my struggle. Lord, I'm struggling with this. Lord, I'm about to blow a head gasket over nothing. Help. That's a good prayer, by the way. Help is a theologically sound prayer. Help. That's good. Because it shows, Lord, I can't do it. Lord, I'm desperate. I need you. You know what? It's good to identify the struggle, the stronghold. Confess it to God. And can I encourage you to be accountable to others? Guys, we're all, anybody here not a sinner, raise your hand. Because then you're lying and now you're, you know, you just sinned again. So here's the point. We got to stop trying to put on the Christian facade of always being perfect. I just walked on water on the way here to church tonight. <laughs> yes, and you know, my wife calling me blessed and my children bow down and worship me. And, you know what I mean? And we put on this facade. And you know what? Guess what? We don't deal with the sin in our lives when we act that way. I, I just The church is a, is a hospital, not a police station. This is not a place where you come to get beat up. It's a, come, it's a place where you come to be healed. Amen? And we're born again. We're new creations in Christ. We're going to heaven. But guys, when we struggle with stuff, confession is a good thing. Verse 4. And they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. They were left to test Israel. One thing for me, you know, guys, it's one thing for me to love my wife if she and I are stranded on a desert island by ourselves and there's nobody else around and she's the only choice I have. Well, I guess I love you. You are nothing, so... Right? It's another thing to love my wife 
when there's millions of other choices and millions of other things I could choose and I choose to love her above all else no matter what? You know what? God desires the same from us. He wants the children of Israel, when everything else is around them, to say, no, Lord, I choose you. No, Lord, I love you. Not my career, not my physique, not my, you know, anything else, Lord. Not my pet sin. Lord, you. You're first. You're my priority in my life, above all else. And he's leaving them there to let the next generation be tested. Now, they would not have been there if their fathers had been faithful, but now they are. And so now the next generation has a choice to make. And what are they going to do? You know what? It's interesting that people struggle with that sometimes. But if there is no choice, there can be no love. Do you understand that? It's not love without a choice. You're a robot if there's no choice. In Garden of Eden, there was a choice, wasn't there? You can eat everything but that. All of it, don't touch that. You know, I have an idea. We don't know in the Bible. I don't think it was very long. Before they were right over there. People say, well, maybe it was a thousand years. I'm like, I, I don't, a thousand minutes maybe. I don't know. Because Satan just showed up and went, you know, God said, and he really knows you're going to be God, so, you know, if you have that, you'll be God. You know. and, and it's all this whole self-worship. You'll be God. Oh, yeah, God, that sounds good. I'd like to be God. And self-deification, right? I'm going to deify myself. It's all about me. That's right, I'll be God. And you know what happens? It goes from self-deification to self-gratification to self-preservation when they get caught and they point at each other. It's the woman you gave me. It was Satan. He did it. It wasn't me. Isn't it amazing? We're all about ourselves. And the point here is that without a choice, it's not love. And there is a choice, guys. Choose today whom you're going to serve. Now, you can't do it without his help. You need to come humbly before him. But compromise is going to begin right away with these people. Look what happens. Here it comes, verse 5. And it says, Thus the children of Israel wiped them all out. That's not what happened, is it? Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. They dwelt among them. And no doubt they probably thought, well, we can just live near them. But we won't get involved in the stuff they do. We'll just, you know, be nearby. We won't have to fight anybody that way. We'll just make peace. And we'll just live near them. Guess what? They're on their way to being completely out of God's will. They saw the enemy strongholds within the land as a source of wealth, a resource for pleasure. And then rather than destroy them, they decided to just go ahead and dwell with them. So too, when you and I hold on to strongholds, Because of temporal pleasure, in the end, they bring about broken fellowship and destruction. Look at the next verse. So they dwelled with them, and then look what it says, and they took their daughters to be their wives. Wait a minute. So they dwelt with them, then they started marrying them. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Amen. Now again, does the Lord love Osama bin Laden as much as he does Billy Graham? Absolutely. He does. Does he desire that both of them be saved? Of course he does. But guys, as Christians, we have to make a choice to make God the priority and not to compromise our faith out of a desire to fulfill the lust of our flesh. 
And they're saying, you know what? Well, we're dwelling with them. And now let's just get married to them. Because they're fine. Right? You know what I mean? She's, she's kind of nice. I'm going to give me one of them Hittite girls. You know what I mean? And that's what happens here. Total compromise. Instead of honoring God, they say, well, let's go down and check out what the world has to offer. Why? Because we become like those we hang out with. Before long, our relationship with the world and its pleasures are more important than our walk with God. You know what? You see it happen right before your eyes in other people's lives, and you just, ah! Especially when it's your kids, right? What are you doing, right? You just want to stop them because you know where it's headed. But I'm 14, and I know everything. I got it all figured out. So when my dad gets a little smarter, you know what I mean? And the truth is that there's a point in a time when it's so, it just breaks your heart to watch where it's headed. But, so, but sometimes it has to go there so they can find out the consequences at the end and come to the end of themselves. So they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons. And they what? Serve their gods. Oh. Do you see the, do you see the compromise? Dwelt among them. Married them. Worship their gods. Eve saw it was good. Saw, took, ate. Isn't it amazing how that happens? Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom. Right? He looked out. Ooh, it's green. I'll go that way. Then he pitched his tent toward Sodom. And then you see him where? In the city gates of Sodom. Then you see him saying, Take my daughters and sleep with them. Have your way with them. What happened, Lot? He pitched his tent toward Sodom. Guys, we need to run away from Sodom. Don't say, I'm going to see how close I can get to the world and not, you know, get burned by it. I want to be right next to the inferno, but hope I don't get fried, right? And the point is that this is exactly what's happening. Is they dwelt among them, and then they married them, and now they're serving their gods. And the Lord knew this was going to happen. What a heartbreak. Look at verse 7. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroths. Baal, as we talked about last week, Baal or Baal, depending on how you want to pronounce his name. He was the God of rain. Remember the story of Elijah, right? But Baal was also considered a God of wealth. You know why? Because they were an agricultural people. And if there's no rain, there's no crops. There's no crops, there's no money. So Baal was considered a God of wealth as well. If Baal is favorable upon us, we'll have great crops and we'll have great wealth and we'll be doing wonderful. Ashtaroth was the goddess of sex. And they had prostitutes that you slept with as part of your temple worship. I get that was a real popular church. And so here you have, they said, you know what? Forget about God. We're going to serve the gods of wealth and sex. Is there anything new under the sun? It's no different than today, is it? People are saying, my relationship with her is more important than you. They're not saying it out loud, but their actions are showing it. They're saying, my pursuit of wealth is more important than serving God. You know, I'd love to come to church, but I've got to make the payment on the second boat for the guest house and the, the vacation thing. And the, you know what I mean? I'm working all these hours so we can have more free time and we can be more relaxed when God has something so much greater for us. Bad company 
unequally yoked relationships leads to them forgetting about the true and living God. Guys, we got to see this. You have to see this. Don't walk out of here not seeing that. You start hanging out with the world, you're going to forget God. No, I won't. Yes, you will. You may not oh, completely forget Him and wipe Him out of your memory. You might show up at church you know, a couple times a year. You might listen to a worship song every once in a while and be convicted. But guys, your priorities are going to change. That's why He says don't do it. It began when they did not obey God's command to cleanse the land completely. Disobedience brought about a test. They failed miserably. They dwelt among the people. They were linked to the people. They began to worship their gods. And before you knew it, they forgot about the true and living God. Guys, do we see how this works? Often in a Christian life, it's not a blowout, but a slow leak. You know, you're not driving down the road and the tire explodes. What happens is there's a slow leak and we just take one little compromise and then another little compromise and then another little compromise. And before we know it, we don't even recognize where we are or how we got there. And that's exactly what is happening here with the children of Israel. Verse 8. Therefore, how does God respond? Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. By the way, if that is said of you, it's not good. <laughs> the anger of the Lord is hot against Dave Johnston. I don't want to, No, no, I don't want that. Amen? No. Uh, repent. Amen? Lord, I'm getting right. You know what I mean? I don't want you angry. And here's the thing. Why is he angry? Because he loves them. He wouldn't be angry if he didn't care about them. He's angry because he knows they've made a choice that's going to lead to heartache and destruction. It says there, And he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathium, king of Mesopotamia, and the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathium eight years. It's interesting that Kushan Rishathium means double darkness. I think that's by chance in the Bible. You disobey God and you end up where? Darkness. You just walk away. You don't, your, your, your focus has changed. Your priorities have changed. You know, sometimes I'll run into somebody, and I know this has happened to all of us. Have you ever run into somebody that was on fire for God at one point? And then you see him and you go, what? You don't see them for 10 years and, and their life now is a disaster. And you think, what happened? Because for us, it's a stark contrast, right? I saw you here, now I see you here. For them, it was a little step away until they got where they are now. Guess what? They ended up in double darkness or twice wicked, as some translations would, would term the word disobedience and rebellion leads us into darkness separation from god and his plans for our life attempting to hold on and control our sinful strongholds and temptations in the end will always lead to darkness and destruction god gave israel just what they wanted we will always reap what we sow you guys if we sow to the wind the bible says we will reap the whirlwind right if we sow to godless things then we will reap the consequences of it. So the high cost of compromise. They dwelt among the enemy. They were linked to the enemy. They worshipped the gods of the false enemy. And now they became captives to the enemy. Now they're captives to the enemy. They've been captured by and are slaves to the enemy. Just like you and I can become slaves to sin. Again, as Christians, we've been set free from that. Unbelievers are slaves to sin. You and I, if we're truly born again, are slaves to righteousness. We're convicted when we sin. Amen? That's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. 
is the conviction that comes when we sin. But I also believe as Christians we can, we can, zero, we can have times of rebellion where we just say, Lord, I'm holding on to this. I know you know what's best for me. I'm doing it anyway. Has anybody else ever done that besides me? You know it's sin, and you go, I'm doing it anyway. You know what? I'm doing it. I told you that story about a pastor. He shared this at the pastor's conference, so I can share it. He shared this to 2,000 pastors. I was like, dude, you're so fired. But then I found out. But he got up, you know what he said? He said, I was so mad at God, because his wife had been diagnosed with cancer. He was so mad at God, he hadn't drank in 25 years, he went down to the liquor store, and he got a 12-pack. He drove way far away from his church and got a 12-pack because he didn't want to see anybody from his church. So he comes walking out and he runs into Greg Laurie, who's at the deli next door. Now, Greg Laurie's a pastor in Southern California who's a good friend of his. And he's like, hey, bro, so how's it going? And he sees him with a 12-pack in his hand. He's like, I can tell not so well for you. The Lord, those the Lord loves, he disciplines, right? He, he loves us enough to send someone our way to go, dude, Aren't you glad? And the point is that we can get angry and we can just say, I'm going to rebel. You know what? Who gets hurt? Me. I'll show God. I'm going to rebel against his love and grace and mercy. And I'm just going to go out and tear myself up. I'll show him. No. Don't dwell among them. Don't be linked to them. Be linked to Jesus. Amen. So now the second point, faithful judges. And watch these guys. And in each of them, we're going to see some attributes that should be an encouragement to us on how we can be, again, removed from these things that cause us, again, to allow those strongholds to remain. Look at verse 9. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. There it is. Now, eight years it took. Sometimes I think this is about the right amount for teenagers. Eight years, right? About eight years later, they go, uh, I guess my dad did know what he was talking. You know, here's the thing. So eight years go by, and I have an idea for eight years. They were like, we don't, we're just going to keep doing what we wanted to do. And the consequences are coming fast and furious. I don't care. I'm doing it anyway. Well, eventually, after being enslaved for eight years, they cried out to God. There is step number one to ridding yourselves of the strongholds in your life. Is coming to the place where you're broken and desperate for God. Amen? That's where it stops. Lord, here's what's going on in my life. Lord, I'm broken before you. I can't do this myself. Lord, I need your help. There's step number one. If you're struggling with a, a, a pet sin in your life, a pet struggle in your life, whatever it might be, can God take care of that? He absolutely can. Could he take care of it tonight before you leave? No doubt in my mind. But we need to come to a place of desperation and brokenness before him. And say, Lord, help. The Bible says, The fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The fact that God can and desires to deliver us from these struggles, if we will simply come before him and confess and say, Lord, help. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, or in this case, it means his nephew, and it's also his son-in-law. As you guys know, I love this guy. Othniel's like my boy. I love this guy. He's like one of my favorite people in the Bible. Why do I love Othniel? Because Caleb, as we know in, the, in Joshua, Caleb said, if anybody wants to marry my daughter, 
They need to go down and fight the giants. Because if you're going to marry the daughter of a giant killer, you better be a giant killer. She said, if you go down and fight the giants and you can come back here, then you can marry my daughter. And you know what? I have an idea. Maybe a lot of guys tried. But who came back? Othniel. Now, I find it interesting that Othniel was a giant killer and that Caleb could have wiped out the giants himself, but he wanted Othniel to do it because he wanted to give ministry away and he wanted to have the young man who was a giant killer to be the husband to his precious daughter. And he said, hey, go do it. And he gave the ministry away. Now, what I love about this is here's the other end of that story. Who's the first judge over Israel? Othniel. And where did he learn this? From his father-in-law. Where did he learn this? To be a man of faith, a man who walks, as we're going to see, in the power of the Holy Spirit. He learned it from his father-in-law, who said, you want to marry my daughter? And you know what? She must have been fine, or nobody's killing no giants. Right? She wasn't uglier than been like, yeah, John, I don't think so. Kill ants? I'm not doing that either, right? So they had, you know, I think that of Potiphar's wife. You know, you know Potiphar's wife was beautiful. How do you know? Because he had to run away. If she was ugly, he would have said, give me my coat. I mean, stop it. You know what I mean? Where do I got to go? It's not a temptation for me. And the point here is that she must have been beautiful. And so Othniel goes. He wins the battle. He comes back, and he gives him his daughter. And now he's in the land. And now the major trial comes, and God raises up a deliverer. And who does he raise up? Othniel. Othniel's name means lion of God. And you know what? He was a godly giant killer. And again, how are we able to defeat the giants? How is he going to defeat the Mesopotamians? Look at, let's read on. It says there, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. There it is. How was it that he was a giant killer? The Spirit of the Lord was on him. How is it that he's going to wipe out the Mesopotamians? The Spirit of the Lord is on him. How is it that you and I can overcome the strongholds in our life? The Spirit of God must be upon us. Amen? With the unbeliever in us, at salvation. Subsequent to that, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and you shall receive power from on high when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You know why people live lives that are fruitless and lackluster as Christians? They have not experienced the fullness of the Holy Spirit in their life. Guys, I surrender all. Amen? Amen. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon me. It's interesting. I had this happen, and I just thought about this the other day. I was driving on, it was, I'd been I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, I came back up to visit. I was already married, and I went to eat with a couple of my really close friends. And one of my friends said to me as we were driving back from dinner, he goes, you know, Dave, I got a question for you. I said, what's that? He said, when I knew you before, you were a Christian. He said, but now you're really a Christian. He goes, what happened to you? And I remember going, And then a few minutes later, I went, you know what, bro? I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's what happened to me. Holy Spirit overflowing. Not just in me, but upon me. And it should change us, amen? Now, we know this is a fact because it says he breathed it in them, and then he said, go and wait, and the Holy Spirit shall come upon you. Now, do we need to keep praying for the Holy Spirit to fill us afresh? What's the answer? You know why? Because we leak, amen? So we do. It needs to be that daily. John the Baptist said, Jesus said, of men born among women, none greater than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist said, I must decrease that he might increase. So every day I got to be decreasing. I got to be dying to self. Amen? And so we see here that he was filled with the Spirit. 
the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. And he went out to war, and the Lord delivered, not Othniel, the Lord delivered Cushas, Cushan Rishthiam, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishthiam. So the land had rest for 40 years. All right, Othniel, raised up by God to be the deliverer, spirit of the living God upon him, and the Lord, through him, brought deliverance from the consequences, from the stronghold of their sinful behavior. They had dwelt among them. They had married them, linked to them. Then they started serving their gods. Eight years in their land. Then they cried out to the Lord. He brought a deliverer, and he freed them from it all. That's the mercy of God, isn't it? That's what God will do for us. We're struggling with it. God wants to free us from it. So too you, must you and I be empowered by the Spirit. I love the Othniel because he was a Zach, Zechariah 4, 6 kind of guy. What's that verse say? Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. So, desperation, brokenness, a Spirit-filled believer. That's the beginning. That's the source of getting rid of those strongholds in your life. You're not going to do it by making a New Year's resolution. How's that working out, by the way? It's April. How are you doing on that? I'm not going to do that anymore. Anybody else done that besides me? As of January 1st, that's it. Never doing that again. I tend to do the opposite. Starting January 1st, I'm going to go to the gym five days a week. And that lasts for about a week. Right? We start making these New Year's resolutions. And guys... That doesn't transform us. It's the spirit of living God inside of us that transforms us. Amen? So we've seen Othniel. Let's look at Ehud. Now look what it says here of this, of this man of God. Now, it says, Then Othniel, the son of Canaz, died. Guess what's going to happen? Forty years of peace, honoring, serving God, right back where they belong. Othniel dies. What are the people going to do? They're going to rebel again. Look what it says. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon. Now, poor Eglon. This guy's name means, it means either heifer or round. And we're going to see later on in the verse, later on in the text, that he's the only guy in the Bible described as a very fat man. You're going to see it four verses... He's a very fat man. Now, I don't know if this is true, but historians have said, I don't know if this, this doesn't even sound possible to me, but I'll tell you anyway because I read it. It says that they believe, some ancient records said that his waist was 480 inches. That's 40 feet. Aren't you feeling really thin right about now? I'm feeling pretty good. That guy's 444 inches fatter than me. I don't know if it's true, but his name means heifer, and his name means round. Thanks, Mom and Dad. You know what I mean? I'm going to name my son Round Heifer. And they fed him like it, evidently. Now, so the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. You know, you'll, you'll see this often in the Bible. The Lord will strengthen the enemy to bring righteous judgment. God will even use an ungodly king to bring about righteous judgment. That's why when some people struggle about our government, God can use any government, no matter how in or out or where they're supposed to be, and use them for righteous judgment. And so that's what happening, is happening here, is God is raising them up. Now look at it says, verse 13, Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon 
Amalek and went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. Now the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Amalekites. The Moabites and the Ammonites, you know where they came from? Lot having sex with his daughters. Nice heritage. The Amalekites were descendants of Esau. You know, who's, who's Esau's twin? Jacob. Jacob is a picture of the spirit. Esau is a picture of the flesh. So these are the three kingdoms of the flesh. The Amalekites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites. And he's going to use them to bring judgment upon Israel. Because that's what happens sometimes when we succumb to the things of the flesh. We are judged by the flesh itself. The flesh itself will bring about the consequences. And that's what's happening here. Guys, we go out and do drugs, we might destroy our liver. Right? We'll go out and do things in our... we go out and sleep around and we might get AIDS. There are consequences that come upon our flesh when we do fleshly things. City of Palms, that's Jericho. Because it was a land, again, that was fruitful. So the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Do you notice it takes them longer to, to repent this time? Do you think it's because the punishment is harsher? You know what? I just think that they're getting more thick. I think they're just more obstinate this time. Oh, well, you know, we're gonna, I don't, I'll show God. I just won't. I'm going to get right with him at all. How about that? I'll show him. That works out real well. Now, here's what happens. Then the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Praise God. It took 18 years, but they did it. This should encourage us to keep praying for some of our friends. I've been praying 12 years. Pray for six more. Keep praying. And so it says here that after 18 years, they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Now, why would they put that in the Bible? A southpaw. Why why did they put that in the Bible? We got to understand something. In those days, being left-handed was considered to be almost like a curse. Or almost like you were not normal. Something was wrong with you if you were left-handed. Most people in those days, they were left-handed, just forced themselves to be right-handed. Because it was kind of a bad thing. Some believe that, that according to the way the text is written, it even means that his right hand was disabled. So the only hand he really had that worked was his left hand. So this was a guy that, from the world's perspective, wasn't really whole or right or perfect. And those are the kind of people that God uses, isn't it? And so we're going to see that here. It's interesting, Josephus, in describing him, says, There was a young man of the tribe of Midjaman by the name of Ehud, the son of Gera, a man of very great courage in bold undertakings and of a very strong body, fit for hard labor, but best skilled in using his left hand in which was his whole strength. So, God raises up a deliverer, and he doesn't always raise up the most perfect person from the world's perspective. It says, by him the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Do you notice what's happened here? Why did they keep the people in the land to begin with? So they could get what from them? Tribute. Taxes. Now they left them there and they're paying them taxes. Do you see what happened? You compromise and you think you're going to get something from it and instead it only takes from you. The enemy says, hey, I'll give to you, I'll give to you. No, he'll take from you. And that's exactly what's happening here. Now Ehud made himself a dagger. It was a double edge and a cubit in length, about 18 inches long. 
and fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. Now, why is this significant? Because most people right-handed, and they would put their sword on their left side. And so that's where if somebody was checking to see if you had a weapon, guess where they would check? Left side. His on the right side. And he might have woke up, he might have thought when he was a kid, how come I got to be left-handed? I ain't even right. Everybody makes fun of me. God had a plan. And sometimes we look at our, our, our physical attributes, we look at our position in life, and we think, why is God allowing this? Let's just trust that God knows what's best, amen? So he has this dagger, and it's a double-edged sword. What does that sound like, a picture of? God's Word. Hebrews 4 says the Word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. In Ephesians 6, the sword of the Spirit represents the Word of God. So he has this dagger under his garment. And this is maybe a stretch for some of you, but hiding God's Word in your heart, right? He's got it under his garment. He's hiding it. It's there. It's ready for whenever he needs it. Amen? Kind of like sharing your faith. Hiding God's Word in your heart. It's right there. It's ready whenever you need it. Look at verse 17 and 18. So he brought tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. I wasn't making it up. The Bible says you're very fat. You probably are. All right, I need to move on here. And when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. So he brings in this gift, then he sends everybody away. Verse 19. But he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, keep silent. And all who attended him went out from him. I'm behind, so let me just go through this quickly. Here's what happened. He goes in to give the tribute. He sends everybody away. And as he leaves, he sees his stone images at Gilgal. Guys, what was at Gilgal before? Who remembers? Bonus question. The Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle. And now what's there? Altars to false gods. What happened? They kept the people there. They kept hanging out with him. He goes out, and I don't know if he had already had the plan or he just got stirred up. He went out and he saw the stone images of Gilgal, and he went back. He said, you've got idols out here. And he maybe, I don't know if God worked in his heart or what. And he went back and he said, I have a secret message for you, Eglon. And you know what? And I, you know, how many of you guys saw Star, the old Star Wars? I don't know why I think of Jabba the Hud, but I just do. Eglon the Moabite. I don't know. I just... Big guy. Okay, so he comes in to Eglon the Moabite and says, I got a secret message for you. And he says, keep silent. He basically says, wait till everybody leaves and then tell me. Verse 20. So Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Then Ehud said, I have a message for you from God, message from God for you. So he arose from his seat. And that might have been a sight in and of itself. So he gets up out of his seat. He go, I got a message for you. Now, the cool chamber was usually up on the rooftop. It was usually made out of like lattice. It was a place where they would go, because it's hot there, to cool down in those, in those summer days. Verse 21. Then Ehud reached with his left hand and took the dagger from his right thro- thigh and thrust it into his belly. Are you getting a visual here or what? And look what it says. Even the hilt went in after it. That's the... You know, the handle. So this thing's 18 inches long. I, you know, let's just say the handle's 12 inches long. The guy's 30 inches deep. And look what it says. Even after the hilt went and after the blade, the fat closed over the blade. He was a very fat man. 
For he did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and his entrails came out. And you know, the Bible, man, is just so direct sometimes. Now, how many of you guys have, have King James? Anybody have just KJV, not New King James? What does it say for entrails? Dirt. dirt. You put the Word of God in, and what comes out? The dirt. The dirt. Amen? The two-edged sword comes in, and the dirt comes out. Amen? When we apply the Word of God to our lives, we start getting cleaned up, don't we? The Bible says, sanctify your home by the washing of the water by what? The Word of God. The two-edged sword comes in and dirt comes pouring out. It's right there. It's in your Bible. You're reading it. Verse 23. Then Ehud went out the, the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. You notice he's pretty calm. If you're running away from stabbing the king, don't you, like, run away? He turned around, locks the door, and walks away. You know why? Because he knew he was in control. Amen? He didn't panic. God was in control. When he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look. To their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said, he is probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. You know what that means? Going to the bathroom. And a guy who's big probably eats a lot, so he might be there a while. Verse 25. <laughs> Look at the next verse. I'm... So they waited till they were embarrassed. Or ashamed, if you have the old King James. You know what they're saying? They waited so long, they thought, man. It's the ver- Is he okay? So they go to the door. And still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. Then they took the key and opened them, and there was their master fallen dead on the floor. Eglon was dead. While he was strengthened by God and used to judge Israel's rebellion, it didn't mean he would escape judgment. Wasn't Eglon used by God to judge Israel? But now he still faces judgment, doesn't he? Just because God may use someone to bring judgment upon his people, it doesn't mean that his judgment will not come one day. I love Ehud. This guy's a, a brave guy. Look at verse 26 to 28. But Ehud had escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Sarah. And it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains, and he led them. Then he said to them, Follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab, and they did not allow any one to cross over. Have you ever noticed how when somebody has great boldness that it brings great boldness in others? He comes back and he's seen God's hand work once and he knows God's going to work again. He says, he blows a trumpet this time. He went in by himself on his own the first time he saw God's hand at work and now he's blowing a trumpet saying, let's go. David fought Goliath. Everybody was shaking in their boots till Goliath fell. All of a sudden, everybody got real brave and ran down the hill behind him. Same is happening here. Last few verses. At that time, they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor, valor. Not a man escaped. Notice when they do it God's way, nobody gets away. They didn't leave anybody alive. It says, so Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for how long? 80 years. 80 years. Our God is greater than any man, any army. We want to bring down strongholds. We bring them down, first of all, with desperation and brokenness, crying out to the Lord. By having the Spirit of the living God upon us, and then by rightly handling the Word of God.
Amen? Having a handle on God's word. Last verse. There's one verse about this guy, but I kind of like this. It says there, After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad. Don't you love how God will have a guy just use like the weirdest stuff to kill people? (laughs) Gideon's mighty army, what do they have? Pitchers and torches. How did they bring the walls of Jordan down? They played music. Right? David, little teenager. Goliath, 11 foot 750, what did he have? A rock. Why does God do that? So that he'll get glorified. Because if it was a yoked guy, we'd say, oh, that guy was a mighty warrior. No, we say God's a mighty warrior. Amen? But I love this because it says he's a son of Anath. We're out of time, but here's what it says about him. Anath was a, a Canaanite god. So that means this kid grew up in a dysfunctional family, right? Everybody here did, by the way. Because dysfunction, the better word for that is sinful. Who, who grew up in a sinful family? All right, praise God. Now here it is. So this guy was a humble man, and he took an ox goad, which means he was probably a peasant. Because only peasants used ox goads to prod their animals and to to clean off their hooves and and their plows. And so this guy was a peasant, and he was a guy who grew up in a home where they named his father was named after a false god, and now God's using him to wipe out 600 Philistines. You know what that should encourage every one of us? Is that God can use anybody and anything to do great things. Amen? And that should be an encouragement. May you be encouraged. You know, and I love it because Samson had a jawbone of a donkey and Moses had a staff. And this guy's got a, a, an ox goad. And God may use our stuttering voice. God may use our imperfections and our frailties. Our weakness. Because in our weakness, he's made strong. Amen? So in closing, if you're here and you've got strongholds in your life, undealt with sin... The first thing you need to do is come before God broken. Just say, Lord, I can't do it. I've tried it. It's not working. Help. Lord, I've blown it. Lord, forgive me. Lord, help me. Then pray that God would pour out His Holy Spirit upon you. Because as He does, God will give you the strength to walk away in times of temptation. And then that you would be able to rightly handle God's Word. That you'd be a man or a woman of the Word of God. You know what? It's been said that sin will keep you from this book or this book will keep you from sin. Amen? And I find in my own life, the more time I spend in the Word, the less time I'm getting mad. The less time I'm blowing it. The less time I'm struggling with anger or bitterness or lust or whatever it might be. So God's Word increases our faith. May I encourage you, if you're here, let's let's get right with God tonight. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, we praise You, we worship You, Lord. And Lord, I just thank You for these examples in Your Word. And Lord, I pray for anybody here that's got an area of life they've just been holding on to. An area that they know is wrong. They know is disobedient. They know is outside of your will. That Lord, even tonight, they would lay that at the altar. Lay that before you and say, Lord, help. Lord, cleanse my ways. You know, I thank you, Lord, that you forgive us. You can forgive us even now. But Lord, that then you would help us not to go back to that behavior ever again. But Lord, to make you the priority of our life. So Lord, we love you. We praise you. We worship you in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Hey, one down. Let's stand and close the worship song.